Yeah, okay. Good evening and welcome uh, to Cambridge Science Festival. Uh, I love seeing a full room. It's what makes me happy uh, organizing these events, so I'm delighted to have you all here. Uh, our speaker tonight, Christopher Reynolds, is the Plumian Professor of Astronomy and Experimental Philosophy at the University's uh, Institute of Astronomy and a fellow of Sydney Sussex College. After completing his undergraduate and doctoral degrees here at Cambridge, he spent 21 years in the United States, including 16 years as a professor at the University of Maryland, where he ran a research group focused on black holes. However, we're delighted that he chose to come back to Cambridge, and he returned here in the autumn of 2017. So if you please join me in giving him a very warm welcome. Thank you very much. It's a, d a delight to be here. Um, it's great to see such a, a, a full crowd. And thank you very much, Cheryl, for the uh, introduction. If you're wondering why an experimental philosopher is doing black holes, it's what they used to call science in the, in the uh, early 1700s, where they named the chair. So it's actually the chair of, of astronomy and, and experimental science. Um, so I'm going to try and share the, today some excitement of the, um, about modern research into, into black holes. Black holes are um, the most exotic objects that, that we know of in the universe, uh, quite simply. And um, you might be surprised at some of the things they get up to. So I'm going to uh, uh, talk today about some of the amazing things we've learned about black holes in this past, um, past few years. Um, going to start by, of course, telling you what black holes are. And that discussion has to begin with Einstein. A little over 100 years ago, Einstein rewrote the book on how gravity works. And I'm going to you know, keep it very succinct. Basically, after 10 years of intensive work, Einstein came up with the following picture. He said, what we think of as space and time is actually a bit more pliable than we normally think of. And in some sense that Einstein could start to define mathematically, if you have a large mass, such as the Earth or the Sun or a big, uh, or a big star or a black hole, that mass bends the fabric of space and time. And we'll see a little bit later what we mean by, mean by that. But here's a, a, a cartoon of what we mean by, say, the Earth bending the fabric of, of, of space. And then what uh, mass tries to do, or what a, a light ray tries to do as it travels through space, it tries to go on a straight line as much as possible, but because the space is curved, um, that straight line actually gets bent, and that's what we call gravity. That's, that was Einstein's um, insight into, into, how, into how gravity works. And as we'll see, the, 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 the implications of that are actually very, very profound. Now, this is a demonstration of the sun and the sun bending the fabric of, of, of space and time. And here we have a star and a, a light ray from a star that's coming to us on the Earth. And you see that as the light ray is trying to go in a straight line, it's getting bent by the fact that, that the, the space is curved. And so when we look at this star from the, from the Earth, it appears to shift its position. That was an important prediction that Einstein made. And we're almost at the 100th anniversary of this gentleman, Sir Arthur Eddington, going out looking at um, a field of stars behind the sun at the time that the sun had a total solar eclipse, and actually seeing that indeed the positions of the stars were slightly different from what they should be, exactly as Einstein had predicted. 
So this was viewed as a, as a dramatic a demonstration that Einstein's theory was right, at least in this key prediction, Einstein's theory was right. And in fact, this made both men famous. This is the picture of, of Einstein in Eddington uh, sitting on a bench that is just uh, outside, well, the bench is not there anymore, but this is just outside the observatory building um, of the University of Cambridge, just on Madeley Road. So Einstein had this, this, this theory of, um, of gravity. Now, to quote the great philosopher um, Tom York of Radiohead, um, <laughs> gravity always wins. And what I mean by that is gravity is a relentless force. It is always pulling things together. It is always crushing things together. And in fact, very often in, in astrophysical settings, for example, in the, in the core of a dying star, you can have the situation where gravity is starting to crush matter down and every other force of nature uh, gives up. It is no longer strong enough to, to resist the force of gravity. So what happens when you have something that's trying to crush something down and there is absolutely no way you can resist it, where that thing just gets crushed to um, denser and denser and denser, it gets crushed to a point, and in Einstein's theory, it breaks space and time. It basically punctures through the fabric of space-time. And in a nutshell, that is, uh, is, is our idea of black holes. It's the idea when gravity wins over all other forces and you crush something down and, and eventually you break, you break space and, and time. Now, what kind, of what kind of object do you get when you do that? This is the basic structure of a black hole. At the very center, we have the place where we've broken space-time. We have, the, we have uh, what's called a space-time singularity. Really, that's a fancy word for saying we don't really know what goes on there, and mathematics breaks. Um, uh, we, we've got to come up with some better ideas, which we haven't done yet. Now, very, very far from this, you know, a very, very long way away, gravity is actually working just as normal. As you get closer and closer and closer to this, this amazingly dense, massive object, gravity is getting stronger and stronger. And if you can think about, for example, being in a rocket ship and trying to escape from here, if you're very far away, there's no problem. You can get away. As you get closer and closer and closer, it, the gravitational pull of this, the force that's pulling the inwards, is getting stronger. And eventually, there's a point of no return. There is actually a, um, a limit here. It's called the event horizon where it is impossible to actually escape from the, the, the clutches of, of the space-time singularity. Not even a light ray can escape. So if you were inside of here and you fire the laser out, it wouldn't actually go out, it would still fall in. So everything inside this is, is falling in. So that's called the event horizon. And this is what you think of, this is what you would see if you imagine the classical picture of a black hole. That you see that event horizon, the black sphere, the black, the black sphere of a black hole is an event horizon. <clears throat> this is the location where nothing inside of that can, can, can get out. Now we're going to return a little bit later to the physics of black holes and we'll explore a bit more some of the really cool stuff that goes on, goes on here. But I want to start off uh, you know, now, heading the direction of, let's go hunting for black holes. Let's go and try and find some real black holes out there. So, there's a problem when you're hunting for black holes, which is that space is black, generally, um, and black holes are black. 
So uh, it actually, you might think it's pretty hard to go and find a black hole. And in fact, it actually is pretty hard to go and find a black hole. Now, sometimes nature helps and black holes can find each other. And because black holes find each other, that can actually help us find them. And what I mean by that is you can have a situation where two black holes get together, they'll find each other in space through various interesting routes, and they'll start dan a dance around each other. They'll, they'll feel their own gravity, they'll be in orbit around each other, and what happens is they basically go into a death spiral, because as they orbit around each other, they lose energy, and when they eventually crash together, and what happens when they crash together, you get a bigger black hole, because gravity always wins, so you get a bigger black, black hole. That process of spiraling together produces waves in space-time. Remember I said that space-time can be curved. It, it, to some extent, it can act like a rubber sheet. And you start to send waves out on that rubber sheet. And these are called gravitational waves. There, this is another prediction of Einstein's theory. It's a, a prediction that, uh, until very recently, was untested. But just in the past few years, there have been amazing strides. We actually now live in an era where we have detected these waves and we've um, characterized these waves. Now, the way you do that is you have to build an incredibly sensitive detector. And this is the premier detector right now. This is the so-called LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. And there's two pieces to this. Each piece is the same. It's an L that is four kilometers on each arm. You shoot laser beams down these, down these L's and you combine the laser beam signals um, in this building here. And what you do by combining those laser beams is you actually set up a system where you are incredibly sensitive to small changes in the lengths of those arms. As the length of the arms changes, it actually changes the, the interference pattern of the two laser beams when you, you come together. So, if, suppose, for example, a gravitational wave was to pass over the Earth, well, ripple in space-time, what does it actually look like? You can imagine that uh, suddenly space looks like it contracts a little bit and then, then gets bigger. So you have a wave um, in space. You know, space is expanding and then, then contracting. That will expand and contract these arms, and we could detect that. <clears throat> now, you have two of these because, of course, um, we never see this forest that's around here. It turns out that's a logging forest, so they chop trees down. Um, if a tree falls, that produces a huge vibration through the Earth, because this is incredibly sensitive. It's much bigger than the signal you're looking for. Okay, so you have two of these things, so you can actually correlate signals. They're separated by 3,000 miles. This is in Washington State, um, in the western, northwest of the US, and this is in Louisiana in the south. So um, on the 14th of September in 2015, they detected this signal. This is the detection of gravitational wave from two black holes, each black hole weighing about 30 times the mass of the sun, in a galaxy about a billion light years away, a little over a billion light years away. And we detected the gravitational waves as those two black holes merged together. You see the amplitude suddenly spike and then die away as you get the black holes. So this is an amazing um, confirmation of Einstein's theory of relativity. It's also an amazing detection of, of these two black holes. Now, I could give a whole talk on the gravitational wave um, 
uh, astronomy and the future developments of it. But in fact, I'm actually wanting to, to go in another direction and say that it's actually not as difficult as this to detect black holes. Remember, this is 2015. We've been studying black holes a long time before that. So how do you go about detecting black holes if you're not seeing their death spirals? So this is a beautiful picture of the sky from the Hubble Space Telescope. This is what happens if you take the Hubble Space Telescope, the most sensitive telescope we have, and you point it at a blank piece of sky, you know, blank in quotes, uh, the, the, the emptiest piece of sky you can find, you get this. It's full of galaxies. <coughs> Everything you see here is a galaxy, apart from um, that little guy there. That's a star. Uh, in, in our galaxy. But everything you see there is a galaxy. Now, all of the light you're seeing, every bit of light you're seeing in this image, is actually starlight. You know, it's starlight in the galaxy. The galaxies have hundreds of billions of stars in them. Everything you're seeing here is starlight. So you're not seeing black holes here. <clears throat> but what if you change the way you look at the universe? What if you put X-ray vision on? You're Superman. You put X-ray vision um, on, and you look at the universe in X-rays. If you look at the universe in X-rays, it looks like this. This is um, what's called the Chandra of the universe. We take the most sensitive X-ray telescope we have, which is called the Chandra X-ray Observatory. We point it at what we think is a blank patch of sky. We see this. Now, you look at that and go, well, that's boring. That's a bunch of stars. Everything you're seeing there is a black hole. Okay. Everything you're seeing there is emission associated with a black hole that's at the center of one of those galaxies. And just to sort of drive that point home, this is a beautiful galaxy. It has a very romantic name of AGC 1365. Um, we do like our names. So, uh, but it is genuinely a beautiful galaxy. It's a beautiful uh, a broad spiral. If you now look at this, you put your X-ray vision on, and you look at this galaxy, this is nearby, this is much closer than any of those other ones that I show you. You get that. Okay. It's a blinding, a blinding X-ray source. So something interesting is happening at the very, very center of that, of that galaxy. Now, you say, you know, you've been paying attention, so black holes are black. They're not blinding X-ray sources. What's going on here? How do you get this um, blinding X-ray source from this galaxy? And let me just stress here that these are not a small amount of X-rays. There's more energy coming out um, from the center of this galaxy than there is from all the starlight in the galaxy. Okay? It's a powerful object that's at the center of this, of this galaxy. So to understand this, we have to go to another one of Einstein's famous results, um, which is this, E equals mc squared. Now, everyone knows this form. I think everyone knows this, this equation. It's probably the one equation in physics that almost everyone knows. However, I want you to actually, we, I want to internalize what this really means. The speed of light, this says energy is equal to mass times the speed of light squared. Okay, super simple little formula. The speed of light is a very, very large number. It's a very, very fast thing, light. So you take this very, far, very large number, speed of light, you square it, and you multiply that by mass, and that gives you energy. What that means is that a tiny little bit of mass can give you a lot of energy. That's what, that's what this means. Now, here's a, a nice heavy book, a nice volume edited by, by Stephen Hawking. It's 
weighs about a kilogram. Um, so one way of getting energy out of this book is I could just drop it. Okay. That, we, that releases about 10 joules of energy. The unit of energy uses joule. That releases about 10 joules of energy doing, doing that. Alternatively, I could have a kilogram of high explosives. I could make this TNT, for example. I don't have that lying around. Um, I, don't, they, they, I tried it on the risk form. Uh, that would release about 4 million joules of energy. So, you know, about 400,000 times the energy I just released dropping this book. Um, and you can picture for yourself what that would do, uh, sending a kilogram of high explosives off. That's still a minuscule amount of energy compared to what you would get from this form if you put one kilogram in it. Minuscule, less than one billionth of the energy you get from this by setting off high explosives. Now, what you could do is have a kilogram of not um, paper or TNT. You have a kilogram of hydrogen, and you could make a device that turns that hydrogen using nuclear fusion into helium. That's a particular process that can give you energy. That's the same process that goes on in the sun. If you did that and had one kilogram of that, you would get one of these. Okay. That, that one, of, one, of, one such device is a hydrogen bomb. Um, which unfortunately where a lot of this physics was, was, was uncovered. So uh, this releases, um, see the number, 600 trillion joules of energy. Huge amount, okay. Um, if you want to put it in those TNT terms, uh, it's about 150,000 tonnes of TNT that's released by, by taking one kilogram of hydrogen and turning it into helium through nuclear fusion. That's still less than 1% of what we get from E equals mc squared. Now, let's come back to black holes. Suppose I took this book and I dropped it into a black hole. But suppose that as it was traveling in towards the black hole, uh, somebody else threw a book in from, the other, from, from you know, some other direction, and the two books hit, hit each other. Well, as it's falling into the black hole, it can start to speed up. It can get very fast. It can get close to the speed of light. And the other, another book coming in, getting closer to those two books hit each other, you're going to get a lot of energy out of that. So if you, these are some numbers here, if you drop one kilogram into a black hole, you get an equivalent to 2.3 megatons TNT. Okay, that's a very large hydrogen bomb. Um, for, uh, and that's 10% of this formula. Now, for completeness, um, the way to get all of this energy is you take um, half a kilogram of matter and half a kilogram of antimatter, put those together, boom, you get, uh, you get 23 megatons, which is the full, the full amount of E equals mc squared. But given that we don't have huge amounts of matter and antimatter lying around in the universe, black holes are, one of, are the most efficient means we know for turning mass into energy. Dropping stuff into a black hole is, is on the large scales at least, you know, beyond antimatter, is the most efficient way we know of getting energy out of mass. So that's what's going on in the curious black holes at the center of our galaxy. <clears throat> we have a black hole and there's lots of gas surrounding galaxies. The gas is falling towards the black hole, and as the gas falls into the black hole, it's emitting enormous amounts of energy. It's releasing that energy 
that, that, that we, just, we just talked about. Now, what typically tends to happen is as the gas falls into the black hole, it's always got some sense of rotation around the, around the black hole. So it, start, it, it spins out. It forms a disk like this. It forms one of these uh, beautiful structures called an accretion disk. And this accretion disk, you know, I think of as sort of the engine that's turning this fuel, which is the, the, the inflowing mass, into, into energy and is powering these amazingly luminous sources we see in the centers of, the centers of galaxies. So um, this accretion disk, actually, well, these accretion disks are fascinating structures in their own right to study. There's a lot of research that actually goes on, including in my group, into these accretion disks. Um, we ended up using the same kind of techniques that engineers use who study um, gas flow over a supersonic um, through a, over a supersonic plane, aerodynamic uh, techniques, computational fluid dynamics. So, for example, this, this is a, a one of the um, simulations from, from my research group of one part of these accretion disks where we actually can model how the gas is orbiting around the black hole. We can model how it drains in, and we can actually model how it, it radiates its energy as it does it. It turns out to be a very fascinating problem in, in, in fluid dynamics. We have to deal with the turbulence in the gas. There's a lot of interesting physics that, that, that's in there. Now, one of the, one of the many complexities of these accretion disks is that you know, I've been talking about things falling into black holes. That makes a lot of sense, given how strong their gravity is. It turns out that you know, I mean, nature agrees with that. Nature's lots uh, of mass flow. But nature also says, no, there's a lot of stuff coming out as well. This is a beautiful uh, picture of the Centaurus A galaxy, which is a nearby, nearby galaxy. And this, this funny color stuff here, this is a radio image. This is what you get through a radio telescope, and you overlay a radio image onto this map. And what you're seeing is the very center is a black hole, and there are powerful jets of radio-emitting gas that are being flung out of the center of this galaxy. And if you, uh, if you look at this carefully, you actually see that these jets must be flung out close to the speed of light. Some of these get to 95, 98% of the speed of light, these, these outflowing jets. So not only is there must be a lot of stuff flowing into the black hole to, to power it, from somewhere, at least in the vicinity of the black hole, there's a lot of stuff that's being pushed out. So this raises a very interesting question or point, which actually took astronomers and astrophysicists quite some time to, to, to accept, because it just seemed it was unpalatable to start with. The fact that you have a black hole at the center here, and, and on, this large, on this scale, the black hole's tiny. Right? The black hole is, is about the size of the sun in this, in this galaxy, and the galaxy is, is huge. We'll come to the scales in a, in, in a little bit. But this jet is going out a very long way. So black holes can actually make their presence felt across huge distances. So that raises... Um, yeah, that, that brings us one of the most profound findings in, in black hole astrophysics for, for the past 20 years. And then, let me illustrate that with, with our galaxy. This is our galaxy. It's not a real picture of our galaxy. It's an artificial galaxy. Um, we have a disk. There's about 100,000 light years from side to side. At the very center of our galaxy, we know that there is a black hole 
and we know it's about four million times the mass of the sun. Now, how do we know that? Because there are people who have very patiently pointed their telescopes at the centre of the galaxy. They can see individual stars in the centre of the galaxy. Then they come back a month later and make another picture of the individual stars. And they do that for about 20 years. And if you do that, um, you find that the stars are moving. This is a blow-up of the stars in the very centre of our galaxy. There's like a little swarm of bees. They're buzzing around something. And what are they buzzing around? Well, whatever they're buzzing around is very dark. That sounds good, doesn't it? Um, and so it, it's a, it must be a black hole. Whatever buzzing around is four million times the mass of the sun. They know that from the, from the speeds that the stars are going at. And it's completely dark. The only thing in physics we know that it could be is actually, a, is actually a black hole. So we have a four million solar mass black hole at the center of our uh, galaxy. It's tiny. It takes light about 80 seconds to cross, to cross it, as opposed to the 100,000 light years it takes light to cross our galaxy. So, you know, it's a, it's a black hole, it's impressive, but it's tiny, and it's not actually brought that much mass. Four million times the mass of the sun compared to a trillion times the mass of the sun for our whole galaxy. So it's sounding like the black hole is, is kind of cool, but inconsequential. But let's do some numbers. Right? Let's, do some, let's, let's, let's do a little bit of, of, of physics here. So the energy release building that black hole is 10% of mc squared. We have to pour mass in to build the black hole. So how much energy do you get out? You get 10% of mc squared. That is a very large number, 10 to the 54 joules. That's one with 54 zeros after it, joules. Okay, so the end of the book was 10, was 10 joules. It's a large number. Large numbers in astrophysics, we can get used to. Now, how much energy would it take to completely destroy our galaxy. That sounds very violent, but, but suppose we wanted to take every bit of matter in our galaxy and just blow it out into, into deep space. How much energy would that take? And there's a little calculation we can do here that involves um, Newton's constant of gravity g and the side of the galaxy. But the answer you get is about 2 times 10 to the 52 joules. That number is 50 times bigger than that number. There's 50 times more energy release building the black hole than it would take to destroy our entire galaxy. We just yeah, we might start to worry a little bit. Okay. Um, we're here. It's okay. It didn't happen. Um, but there is a question of, well, that is amazing. Does it ever happen? You know, is it actually possible for black holes to have a profound effect on the galaxies that they're, that they're in? And the answer is yes, it does. It, we, we think that that is absolutely true. This is a, a, a beautiful picture of the so-called Perseus cluster of galaxies. It's a, it's a whole bunch of galaxies close to each other. And the, the impressive-looking spaghetti monster in the, in the middle is the central galaxy of this, of this cluster. And again, it took us a while to realise this, but... By all rights, that central galaxy should be growing like crazy. There should be thousands of new stars being made every year. Um, it should be you know, 10 times more massive than it really is. Why do I say it should be? Because if you put our X-ray vision on again, it's surrounded by an enormous pool of gas. There's an enormous pool of X-ray emitting gas around it. 
The X-ray emitting gas is cooling like crazy. It should be flowing into that central galaxy and making stars, making new stars and, and, and growing the galaxy. It's not. Okay. Uh, why is that gas not cooling? It's not cooling, it must be heated. How is it being heated? Well, you can see here um, all this interesting structure here. These are being blown by the jets. Here you have all this structure. You've got bubbles, you've got ripples and shocks and everything. But that's all of that is being driven by a jet in the central black hole. So in these kind of objects, we can see this, uh, this disruptive effect of black holes at work right today, actively stopping this galaxy from growing. Now, um, I'm, a, I'm a theorist, so I'd love to, to understand this and simulate it. So uh, these are some calculations that where we've tried to again use the tools of, of computational science to actually uh, model these systems and see if we can understand them. So we have a model here for that hot gas, that extra emitting gas, and we try to model how the jets can go into that and stir it up and propagate, uh, propagate energy of the black hole into the larger galaxy. And we find in broad brush terms, we can actually explain the data that, that we have very well. In detail, we understand nothing. Okay, so so but there's still a lot of work to do to figure out exactly what processes are going on that are letting the aging, that letting the black hole make these jets. What process is going on that let the jets heat the gas around it? Um. Now, what we can also do is this is this uh, particular simulation here, particular computer model, is looking at one particular galaxy. But now there's a whole interesting raft of work by by research groups that have tried to look at how you can um, how the overall population of galaxies evolve. I showed you that beautiful Hubble Space Telescope image, sky full of galaxies. Can we actually understand how all those galaxies um, evolve? The, they start off, we believe, we believe the universe starts off as a very featureless, smooth place. And gradually, as time goes on, this is time since the Big Bang, as time goes on, you start to have objects pull themselves together by their gravitational, gravitational effects. Now this, I haven't told you how big this is, this is an enormous patch of space. This is probably about uh, a billion light years across. This is an appreciable fraction of, of our universe. And what you can see is as time goes on, you have mass that pulls itself together and you start to form these early galaxies, we call these proto-galaxies. In the middle of these galaxies, we're starting to form little black holes, and we put those in the computer simulation. And suddenly, those black holes start to turn on. You start to get mass flowing into the black holes, and boom, you start to get these beautiful um, explosive events where the black holes are driving energy outflows into their, into their, into their surroundings. So with models like this, we can ask, you know, can we explain the full set of galaxies we have around us? Can we explain um, you know, what the, how many galaxies there are of a certain mass, what the galaxy shapes are, what the galaxy colors are? And we're actually making amazing progress to doing that. But we find absolutely that we need to include the black holes. We need to include that energy uh, feedback from the black holes into these models to, to make, them, make them work. 
Let's let, let this play out a little bit. So here we are, 8.5 billion years. The universe is about 13 billion years old. So we won't let it go all the way to 13 billion years, but let it go a couple more. And we see as the universe starts to age, a lot of those effects start to turn off. Okay? The universe is starting to become a quieter place. We're actually living in a fairly quiet universe right now. So some of the things we've studied that we study um, today are actually just shadows of what it used to be like. The universe used to be this much more dynamic, violent place with these, with these black hole effects. And these are now galaxies pretty much as we see today. Okay, so that is, um, that's one thing that you may have not known about black holes, which is that they can have profound effects on the galaxies they live in, profound effects on, on us. I mean, we probably would live in a much larger galaxy if it wasn't for the black hole that, that we have. Now, let's move to back to black hole physics. So black hole physics. Black holes... Oops. What's happened here? Okay, here we go. So, I showed you the picture of space-time being bent with a light ray going past the sun. What happens now if um, we want to study the detailed physics of a black hole? One place to start is what happens if we start shooting light rays around a black hole. And this is a computer simulation um, that one of my colleagues did, just actually, you know, I asked him to do it for this, this talk. Um, here we have a black hole, and we're shooting a bunch of light rays in from the top of the screen. And this is what we do in the black hole. They get completely spaghettified. Yeah, they get completely uh, wrapped around. Now, something that, that um, you, may have, you might have thought it would just fall straight into the black hole, but you see that a whole bunch of them just wrap around the black hole like that. Now, what's going on there? What's going on there is that in this particular calculation, we've allowed for the fact that black holes spin, black holes rotate. Almost every black hole out there is rotating. Now, why do black holes rotate? It's because whatever made them probably rotated. If you have a, if you have a spinning star and the star collapses down to a black hole, the black hole's going to be spinning. It's a very natural, natural process. But you can see that, uh, so what happens if you have a spinning black hole is not only does it bend space-time, it starts to twist space-time. That actually makes space-time like a, like a tornado. So now it's not only bent, but it's tornado-like. And what happens then is that if you start to have a light ray or a rocket ship or something else that's close to the black hole, it starts to whip around the black hole before it falls in. The region very close to the black hole, where it's really being whipped around strongly, has a name. It's called the ergosphere. And the special characteristic of the ergosphere is, in fact, if you are inside the ergosphere, here's a memorizer in the ergosphere, if you are inside the ergosphere, it is impossible to stand still. It is at, you cannot stand still. You have to go around with a black hole. If you wanted to stand still, then in some sense you'd have to be travelling through space and time faster than the speed of light to, to do that, because the, you know, the, the, the um, space-time is whipping around so fast in that location. It's called the ergosphere because there is a, a, a thought experiment you can do, which in fact was first done by Roger Penrose, 
who showed that, in fact, the energy of a rotating black hole, the, en the energy of the rotation, because it has energy associated with rotation, is actually in that region. So um, ergo means work, so this is the ergosphere. So that's nice theory, so what? Well, firstly, there's a lot of energy in this ergosphere. Something like 30% of mc squared is in that rotational energy in, in the extreme case. So, you know, that, that sounds like a waste not to use that, and nature, I think, agrees with that. So the, the, this energy source here, this rotation, is probably what powers those beautiful jets I showed you. Probably. We don't know for certain, but... The second cool thing is we can actually go after the existence of this with real data. And so, um, if you look at an accretion disk, here's, here's the black hole, here's the atmosphere. It turns out there's a special location in an accretion disk called the innermost stable circular orbit, which is a mouthful, so we call it ISCO, um, ISCO. Um, and at that location, the accretion disk, the matter that's orbiting around the black hole, stops orbiting and just plunges inwards. Once it gets too close to the black hole, the gravity just gets too strong and it has to fall in. If the black hole is spinning and you have this tornado-like structure around it, in fact, that can actually stabilize some of those um, orbits. In fact, the, the, the disk can get closer in to the black hole before it, before it plunges in. So that's interesting. That's, that, that's nice theory. How can we test that? Well, one thing I haven't told you is that not only does the black hole you know, do all these interesting things to these orbits, as you get closer and closer to the black hole, time starts to slow down. Now, we talked a lot about curved space, but it also messes with time. So as you get closer and closer to the black hole, time starts to slow down. Clocks start to run slowly. In fact, as you actually get to the event horizon, our sense of time would freeze. Our sense of time stops at the event horizon. So suppose we have some way of clocking material here. Suppose we can actually find some way of tagging how, how quickly the stuff here thinks time is passing. Then we actually have a way that we can start to experimentally test these ideas. And we do. Because it turns out that these evolution disks have little bits, have little traces of iron in them. Just normal iron that, that we all know and love. Have little traces of iron. And those little traces of iron with all these x-rays flying around that, that I talked about, get excited and it produces a very particular frequency of x-ray. And that very particular frequency is like a clock. You know, it's, it's, it's signaling at a very particular, particular rate. When it's close to the black hole, our view of that clock is running slowly. So what we can do is we take a spectrum of the object. We can look at how many x-rays there are um, as, at different energies. And this is a spectrum of one particular galaxy, another favorite galaxy of my romantic name, of NGC 3783. Um, my brain has been rewired to think of four-digit numbers for um, And the, this is the signal of iron. It should just be a spike there. But it's a spike with this big, long tail to it. This big, long tail is this delayed emission from iron. And we can model that quite carefully. In fact, a, a, a lot of my research over the past 
decade or so has been modeling these processes very carefully and quantitatively trying to measure the spin rate of these black holes. And we, we, we can do that. And just to show you some, yeah. some real data, um, this is from a paper uh, I just published a new paper. These are measurements of the spin rate of the black hole in a quantity called spin parameter. But these are spinning very quickly, these are spinning very slowly, versus black hole mass. This is a million uh, times mass of the sun, 10 million, 100 million, billion times mass of the sun for a bunch of galaxies that we've been studying carefully. And you can see that uh, uh, some interesting patterns arise. A lot of objects are spinning very quickly. So maybe nature is using that spin energy. Um, as you get to the more massive black holes, uh, you have a bunch of objects that are not spinning so quickly. So maybe we're learning something about how those objects were made. You know, maybe whatever collapsed to make them was not spinning as quickly as, as, as this. So we can start to learn some really interesting things about black holes using that. Now, the last few minutes, let me just talk about, talk about the future. Um, one dirty little secret I haven't told you about all these X-ray observations I've been doing is that the Earth's atmosphere absorbs every single X-ray from space that ever comes in. Okay. Now, that's a very, very good thing. X-rays are very bad for you. Um, when you go to the dentist and the dentist puts their big lead um, protection on, no, that, that, that's because x-rays are very bad for you. So how do you do x-ray astronomy when we live in a planet and the atmosphere completely absorbs x-rays? You have to get above the atmosphere. So x-ray astronomy is done from space. So this, uh, the, I talked about the Chandra X-ray Observatory. This is the launch of the Chandra X-ray Observatory into space by the Space Shuttle in, um, in 1999. Uh, beautiful nighttime, nighttime launch. And we now have a small fleet of these X-ray telescopes out in space. These are, these are uh, most of them, or essentially all of them. Uh, this is the premier US facility. It's still, it's still the uh, Chandra Space Telescope. This is the, the Exmo-Newton uh, Observatory is the premier European facility uh, launched by the European Space Agency. And then we have um, other sort of smaller, uh, more niche observatories with particular niche capabilities. SWIFT by NASA. There's a mission called New Star, which is a long acronym by NASA. And then uh, India actually launched a, a, a very interesting satellite a couple of years ago. Now, these are, you know, these were both launched in 1999. Um, these are actually quite small telescopes. So we want to get some new equipment um, here. These are actually quite old telescopes. They are uh, quite small telescopes. And as I'll you know, end with, we are limited to some degree in what we, can, what we can do with them. So in fact, an appreciable amount of effort by myself and others goes into trying to work on new missions, you know, these new observatories. So two that we're particularly interested in um, is on the European side, there's something called the Athena Telescope, the Athena mission. This is led by the European Space Agency. So this is a much larger telescope. It's all about size, okay? We want a much larger telescope so we can collect more signals, so we can look at fainter things, we can go deeper, further, um, and we can study um, with more detail. Now, there's also a very ambitious US project that I'm involved with called Lynx. Um, which uh, is named Lynx because of the myth, the myth of the Lynx being able to look through walls, which sounds like x-rays to me. Um, so so the, there's a very ambitious uh, mission called Lynx, 
which also a very large area, cutting-edge technology for this, with these detectors. These are multi-billion dollar facilities. Um, Athena's about two billion, um, and Leeds is about five billion US uh, in the current pricing. So these are very long timescale projects. Athena is slated for launch in 2031, and Lynx, if it's approved, uh, Athena's approved, but Lynx is still going through approval process, it will be launched in 2036. Uh, so these are long term projects. I'm happy to see so many young people in the room because you're the ones that are going to be using these, these facilities. Now, just to give you a, a, a glimpse of what you can do with these, this is where we are in, is um, I haven't told you where these black holes come from. Yeah, these black holes in the center, of, the center of these galaxies, where do these monster black holes come from? We don't actually know. We don't know where they come from. That's a mystery. Where are they... Whatever, however they got there, they got there very early on in the history of the universe, you know, quite soon after the Big Bang, because we know we've seen the existence of these black holes quite early on. So one of the main goals of these two facilities is to look back so far that we can actually see black holes close to the beginning of the universe when um, they were actually being made. And so I'll show you just a... Uh, you know, of course, we for, for, for billions of dollars, you have to do some careful calculations to show you can do it. Um, this is an example of the, the equivalent of the Hubble deep field I showed you, but using the next generation. This is with the successor to Hubble. This is the James Webb Space Telescope, which will launch in um, two years. Um, this is what we hope to see with the James Webb. Some of these galaxies are so... Um, we're looking so far back, these galaxies are just formed in, in this simulation. That's what we're hoping to see. If we now look at this with the Lynx telescope, um, we see this, and some of these black holes are black holes that would have just formed. And we can start to match it up with the, the data from, from um, the James Webb and start to see in detail where did those black holes form, what are their properties, um, what's going on? How do they, how do they get there? Okay, so um, I'm going to wrap up at that point. And um, thank you for your attention. You know, black holes are fascinating objects. I've got to convince you of that. Um, they're very important for the way the universe works. You know, the most basic question astronomers ask is, how did we get here? How did, the, how did our sun get here? How did our galaxy get here? And increasingly, we're finding that thing, these exciting objects are part of, that, part of that story. So let me wrap up there, and um, I can take any questions. Thank you. Okay, have some, have some questions. Um, so we have, we have folks with microphones, and let me point it. So put your hands up so I can see you so, how did you calculate the 10% efficiency from black holes? That's, that's a good question. What you do is um, you build a model of how material is, is accreting in. And remember that ISCO I talked about, that, that in my circuit orbit. Um, when the material gets there, it's actually, at that point, it's radiating all of its energy. And then it just plunges in, conserving its energy. So the question is, 
when it gets to that point, um, how much energy has it released? You can calculate that. It's the binding energy, basically, of that orbit. And, and that gives you the, that gives you the 10%. Um, yeah, thank you. Yes. Then we'll come, we'll come over here. If we're calculating the energy, what happens if you dropped a neutron star into a black hole? Well, that's a good question. That, 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 that sounds fun. That's, that's, that's the kind of fun experiment we think about doing. Um, depends how big the black hole would be. If it's a small black hole, um, it would actually rip the neutron star up before it gets in. And you would get the same kind of, of, of exciting uh, thing that you see. And in fact, that kind of thing is being looked for by the people doing the gravitational waves. If it's a big black hole, surprisingly, it's actually quite boring. The, the neutron star would just go straight in without, without anything happening. Um, just be swallowed whole. <laughs> um, you mentioned that black holes were formed early in the universe, um, and it sounded like you were implying that they stopped getting made and they're not being made anymore. So if they did stop, why? And if they didn't stop getting formed, can we see them being formed now? That, so that's a good question. So, so in, um, whenever a black hole is accreting matter, <laughs> at some level it's forming, in the sense that its mass is growing whenever it's swallowing matter. What you put more of a sort of operational definition, what you say, when did it get most of its matter? And, and what we find is that we see examples of these very luminous black holes in galaxies, already in place, um, we, we see billion solar mass black holes already in place one billion years after the Big Bang. And as far as we can calculate, it takes about 700 or 800 million years to actually make them at that point. So we're sort of running out of time. Um, they have to, the, the, the first seed that then starts to grow, you know, the first black hole, small black hole, which then grows into the big ones, must have been um, in place very early on. So we think it probably goes through a rapid growth phase, and then it tapers off um, as basically you start to run out of, of gas. The galaxies run out of gas. The galaxies have around us today, they have a lot of gas in, but it's nothing compared to what, what the galaxies, what the early galaxies were like. With enormous amounts of fuel for the, for the black holes. Okay, I think there was some over... Uh, the phenomenon you described, the uh, jets of gas, the accretion disk, yeah. the extra, and so on, they're all actually happening outside the event horizon, as far as we can That's right. And what's happening inside the event horizon, the interest to us is stuff coming out from famous radiation or whatever. Yeah. That's, that's an excellent question. Um, so, yes, that's right. Everything that I talked about is, is, hap is happening outside of the horizon. Now, it's a fascinating question whether anything comes out of the horizon. So, you know, Stephen Hawking made this very famous prediction that black holes should, the actual event horizon, should be radiating through a particular quantum mechanical process. That is, as far as I can tell, we, we've never seen that um, because the actual amount of radiation is minuscule for real, real black holes. But, but the theory is very solid, as far as we can tell, that would, that would happen. 
However, that actually raises all kinds of interesting questions about uh, really what goes on inside the black hole, uh, the so-called black hole information paradox that is still um, confusing physicists very, very, very greatly. Um, so, other questions? Um, this is those. I know the gentleman here from the position. Thank you for a fascinating talk. Um, the picture you painted of a black hole was of something, in most cases, enormous accretion disks zooming around the outside, giving off lots of energy, etc. I had the impression that those jets came out from the ports of uh, a black hole, which is yes. sort of 90 degrees down. Yes, that's absolutely true. Yes, yes. In fact, I think the, um, if, I, if I skim to my opening slide, um, I think that structure there is, is so we are still trying to uncover what goes on there quite frankly um, there's there's lots of ideas for how the creation disk can help collimate some flow that goes up this axis mostly associated with magnetic fields they get wrapped up and basically wrapped up into a coil that goes along that goes along the axis but uh, we still don't know the details of how that of how that um, of how that really works. But most of the ideas concern um, wrapping up the magnetic fields around around the axis. Do you have some idea of what percentage of galaxies are black holes in the center? As far as we can tell, it is very close to one hundred percent. Um, galaxies which are close enough to us that we can really scrutinize in great detail, every one of them has, has a black hole. Maybe as you go down to the very smallest galaxies, because there's galaxies across an enormous range of, of, of masses and size, you go to the very smallest galaxies, some of those might not. Um, but equally well, it, those are the ones where it's hardest to detect. So it's, it's, it, we don't quite know whether it's just hard to detect them or whether they truly, truly don't. But at least today, the gal today's galaxies, as far as I can tell, almost 100% have black holes. There was a question at the, at the back there. My question concerns one of the slides. Um, I noticed the ergosphere is not spherical. Um, I wondered why that was, and was that an effect of the gravitation from the black hole? As, yeah, so the ergosphere is there because of the rotation of the black hole. So in the same sense that you know, the rotating Earth bulges out, um, the same physics is happening with the ergosphere. So it, it, it has the orientation due to the um, rotation of the black hole. So right on the pole of the rotation, there is actually no effect due to this. Yes, I understand that. For the sake of consistency, you have an accretion disk, yeah. right? And so, as a factual matter, the ergosphere is not actually spherical. I think you've got to That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That's correct. The ergosphere is not spherical. Um, let's see. Yeah. Um, are we missing any questions at the back? Yeah. Oh, is there one at the very back? Okay, we'll, we'll go there next. Uh, I'm not sure whether this is a, a valid question, but uh, we know that um, nothing can escape from black matter. 
how did the universe escape from the singularity at the beginning of the universe? That is a good question. Well, <laughs> another one of Professor Hawkins' great, great uh, insights was he found a way of getting rid of the singularity, which is a mathematically get rid of the singularity. Um, it's a good question. I mean, yes, what happened in the very, very beginning of the universe is still deeply mysterious to us. Um, the, the, the very back row, there's, there's, there's a question. Can, yeah, can you go to the very back row? Is it important to a black hole to actually get like squash? That's a really good question. Yes, it does. Um, we think that if something falls into a black hole, there's a process, it, it gets turned into a piece of spaghetti. So it gets pulled out, it gets squashed and pulled out, and then, it, and then it falls in. Now, once it gets inside the black hole, we actually don't know what happens to it. Um, then it's mysterious, but, but you're right, it actually gets squashed as, it, uh, as it's falling in. That's a, that's a good question. Yeah. Okay, thank you. On that cheery note, <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to thank uh, Chris Gittin.